How did we used to? St- how did we used to start the podcast back when we did this every week? Well, I had the whole like intro thing, but then I stopped doing that because I was bored of it. And I think at some point we started to do a replacement, but I don't remember what it was. Was it something to do with just like this is how do you engineer? Hey, how's it going? It's a podcast about engineering things. That's perfect. <laughs> Let's do this. I miss the, like, I'm a host. I'm a host, Simon Whitmill. Uh, I'm a host also, <laughs> and I am, I'm Pete Martin. I'm also a host as well, and I'm Abby. Abby! <laughs> Me! This is weird, because Abby is with Pete in Canada, as opposed to being in Germany, but instead I'm not in Canada. I'm in giant, scary New York, New York, with Safwan. I'm a guest, Safwan. Yay! Yeah. We've like, after you went into like the black hole of the United States, we haven't talked to you for a while. Yeah, I've been in hiding for various <laughs> reasons. <laughs> for various reasons. <laughs> it's okay. No one will. No here. one will know of your existence based on this podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. People would have to listen to it before they would know. Things have unfolded here. Since <laughs> Let's just say that. Um. So I can't remember. Are, are you like? Are you gonna name names about where you're working now, or are we just gonna talk about it in vague terms? Oh, we're gonna talk about it in vague. Terms, okay. I think. So <laughs> Safwan is working for a big company with a big scary office that makes me feel like a small town person coming from backwater Canada. Yep. It's um, a. It's what we call fintech. <laughs> in these parts of the woods. Nice. Uh, Side note: If you uh, if you give us enough money, we will also come to your location of business and record you for the podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you either have to give us lots of money or just be awesome like Stefan. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just throwing money everywhere to get Simon to come. <laughs> no, you just threw a bunch of snacks at me. Yeah. I, I didn't even know you could get like individually packaged. Well, not individually packaged olives, but like little baggies of olives. Yeah, Olavs are That's like awesome. the next best thing. There that was, was they were delicious. I didn't know that was like a product. You guys yeah, don't I do totally Soylent over there in uh, New York City. <laughs> I, I feel like know. it's a, I feel like it's the kind of place where they'd have Soylent. <laughs> yeah, I, they do. I think they there's probably a few people in this building that are Soylent people. Yeah, actually, so I did. Okay, so I have a side story. I got all <laughs> my wisdom teeth removed. Uh, like five days ago and i still have i have like stitches coming out of my teeth right now which is making it very hard to talk but um i've actually been on soylent because it is the perfect food to have when you have no ability to to chew okay so it's been pretty good but it tastes like crap even you really have to you gotta be like committed to uh yeah if you if you commit yourself to like mixing it with like ice and ice cream and random other good things that taste good I thought uh, the whole point was you didn't need to add anything to it. Like, it was like... Uh, I don't know. It's Maybe it's subjective, <laughs> but, like, I think it tastes like crap. But, I mean, other people think it's good, and they have flavored ones now, but, I mean, it just tastes too much like soy. Yeah. Like, cardboard, yeah. like drinking cardboard. Did, well, you, ex- like- did you experience the, uh, like, uh, byproducts, the side effects of Soylent? Was it, like, soy it just makes my stomach make a lot of noise, but there's no, like, action. It's just all talk. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's all bark, no bite. <laughs> so it's been good for me. <laughs> Oh, I missed having stuff for the podcast. Five minutes. <laughs> We've covered like a wisdom tooth surgery and soylent. And, okay. Um, yeah, um, yeah. What the heck did we used to do? We used to do this every week, and now I forget how this worked. Um, well, we can just skip all uh, the bullshit and get straight to introducing what Safwan's going to talk about, and then doing some engineering. Okay. 
Um, so if, if they've made it this just... far, they know what podcasts are listening to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they should be like, this is be flashing back to every other recording we've done. that's like this. Um, so yeah, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about deep learning and maybe we'll touch on a bit of big data and some of the cool things that are happening in the space. Um, I think we're in a bit of an exciting time right now. Uh, especially you guys heard about the whole AlphaGo thing that happened last year. Yeah. All the the I was watching that at like 11 o'clock at night. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. And actually there's a, I think there's another competition coming up now. Um, I think Lisa doll wasn't actually the, the number one ranked go player in the world at that time. Um, when they did it, but now they have another competition that's coming up with uh, AlphaGo again, but this time against the actual uh, number one ranked Go player in the world. So that's kind of exciting. And um, yeah, there's a lot of excitement that's generated around this entire space uh, with the accomplishments of AlphaGo. And also there's a lot of deep learning that is embedded in your everyday life and you don't even realize it. I think that's one of the cool things. There are some cool features that uh, mostly Google Google's features come to mind. That Google are, does all of the neatest things. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the Photos app, when you search for, um, you know, a car and you see the, you know, pictures that you have in your photo library that have cars in them, that's mm-hmm. one of the coolest features. I, I love that so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, did, we talked about that when we were talking about Google Photo and how it's, like, surprisingly ridiculous when you think about how complicated that is. It is so complicated, and it is actually amazing. I mean, Google is able to pull this kind of stuff off on a massive, massive scale, which yeah. is uh, really fascinating to watch. It's funny, Abby and I today were... Um, just as a, as a test, we translated one of the pages of some documentation we were doing through Google Translate and then showed it to a Spanish speaking colleague to see how bad it was. And it was actually like surprisingly good. Like a few here and there, there'd be a word that was like the wrong tense or the wrong like type of, of, uh, word, but it was generally like exceptionally good. And that isn't even the deep learning applied translate that they've now released for chinese to english and are slowly rolling out for other languages that's like i believe it i believe spanish is just the standard google translate so yeah yeah, i mean it's pretty amazing good at that Mm -hmm. they have a lot of really good promising results with um so they the new ones that they're rolling out is using this library called um tensorflow yeah tensorflow is crazy tensorflow is actually very very exciting it's there is every once in a while you get like this one, uh, I don't know, like open source software thing that everyone kind of like rallies around. And it really, there's the excitement and the involvement of like the community and actual companies around those, um, projects really drive that, you know, uh, particular thing like TensorFlow in this case to become like the de facto thing that everyone goes to. And I think that's really happening with TensorFlow. This happened with uh, big data. Uh, everyone's like throws around the word big data a lot. But if you actually look under the covers or, you know, most of the time people are referring to something called um, Apache Spark, which is something that we use here as well. But Spark was one of the um, software packages that came out and it just made sense. Uh, it was just the way that they approached how to solve big data problems was very like uh, simple, elegant. You could get up and running very quickly. Um, you know, you can write a program that like parses the tweets in the last like, you know, two years, which is like billions and billions of tweets, right? Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, you could do it very easily. And then all of a sudden, you know, the community kind of rallies around this one software package and then it becomes like the de facto. So if you're doing big data today, most likely you're going to start off with using Spark. Mm. Um, and huh. similarly, TensorFlow is in those early stages now where if you're doing deep learning and actually they're expanding um, TensorFlow for 
uh, just general machine learning too. So if you're doing things with support vector machines and you know just general neural networks, so like shallow neural networks, we'll talk about deep versus shallow. Um, but if you know if you're doing any kind of general uh, machine learning problem, you would be able to do it with TensorFlow. So yeah, it's very exciting. Google is doing a lot of these things. They have a lot of projects internally that they're kind of just migrating existing features over to using TensorFlow, and you'll just see things get much better. Um, and then under the covers, if you peel back, you can see that they're, they've switched over to using TensorFlow and deep, deep learning to power that particular feature. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe we'll, we'll break and we'll do some engineering and then we'll come back and maybe do a glossary and then we'll dive a little bit deeper. Because like, you, you dropped <laughs> yeah. a whole bunch of stuff like support vector machines and shallow learning and a bunch of other stuff that we probably should define I mean, I obviously know everything you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, you're a step ahead of most people because we've already like discussed neural nets and stuff like that. So, if it, like dedicated listeners will have an idea what we're talking about. <laughs> dedicated listeners. <laughs> <laughs> you guys will fix this in post, right? Just like cut the slice here, put it in the beginning. No, it'll be fine. <laughs> this is, this is, maybe, yes, maybe we, we can come do up with a deep learning. All of the edits. <laughs> We'll come up with a deep learning editor algorithm, and that'll go and basically splice this uh, audio track up. Actually, you could probably use it for things like eliminating noise yeah. and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, instead of, like, right now, the Audacity noise removal requires, like, uh, you to select a sample of noise. Okay. But I'll bet you you could teach a, a system to, like, identify what's the background noise yeah. actively. And also set it for, like, the, the standard silence that you want to have between sentences and to remove like coughs and certain mm. words like um and the button mm-hmm. uh and stuff like that yeah you could do it you can make that All happen right. we'll, we'll come back to this because this is this is a cool application once we've talked about how that might work mm-hmm. um so i was thinking because the process of coming to visit saffron at his big impressive company was <laughs> completely foreign to me um like there were fancy printed badges with my face on them and like sta- staging <laughs> <cream>. areas. <laughs> there, I, I don't know if there was ice cream. There was there was there's ice cream was on coffee. Fridays. Fridays oh. at two p.m. in the summer. <laughs> I think they started it now, so you're a bit too Dang. early for it. Um, anyway, but what I was thinking was that we should come up with. There were a lot of people involved in making sure I didn't wander somewhere randomly inside the building, <laughs> um, and and I feel like we could automate that. Like, I think we could come up with a system for, like, managing access to both physical and digital systems within a building that doesn't require so many people. So it's not just not just a security system, but like a security slash information slash guidance system. Yeah, I mean, like, I was really impressed that, like, I walked in the door and they printed me a badge and the badge had on it, like, a unique login for their wireless like guest wireless system Whoa. and it was like wait it's hold really on they snazzy. have a guest wireless system that's pretty impressive <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> and, it, and it works like it's it's not just like when you get like guest wi-fi at like the airport where it's it's got a name but it's not connected to the internet so uh, actually, thanks to that guest wireless system we're talking to you, right? Because yeah, we yeah, couldn't even yeah. call you on the regular employee wireless system. Yeah, because Skype, of Skype only works on the guest wireless, so we're actually using yeah. that system right now. Um, so yeah, no, I, th- I think we, but I think that that was a fairly like person intensive system, and I think we could probably make it more uh, automated, especially because like I think there's already stuff built in to keep to, like track people going in and out of the building. Yep. Um, 
So like, like you should be able to track where people are within the building and know whether they're like in a place they're not supposed to be. Yeah, definitely. I think if they had smarter badges, um, so this is typical of like most big companies in uh, Manhattan, you'll see that as soon as you show up, there's like a pre-existing system for the employee to like say, this is the visitor that's coming uh, and it sends the information down to the front desk. The front desk is somebody that's, you know, a human sitting there. They'll take your ID, log your information, print you a paper badge, which is like so 2017, I guess. <laughs> um, and then they'll, you know, you'll walk to the security guy. Security guard will scan you in. Then you'll walk to another floor, which is what Simon calls a staging area, <laughs> where uh, you're a visitor, but you're not purgatory. like an employee. It's basically like purgatory. It's a red couch here. So well, you... like the, I got in the elevator, and the elevator has buttons for all the floors, but it only goes to one other floor, Yeah, which seemed really strange. It was like, why bother having buttons? Yeah, so it's actually it's because it's made to be optimized for speed and like flow of people coming in in the oh, morning, okay. so, it, so it doesn't back up. So they have elevator banks that only go to certain floors. Oh. Yeah, it's very interesting. There's a lot of thought that goes into it, and they actually have like teams that engineer this. They like monitor flow of people to make sure that there's not choke points in the building, especially okay. in rush hour. But I mean, like... so. So with a big building, like a vertical building, as opposed to those big horizontal buildings, you know, like with, with a skyscraper, that, that's that's a good way you could control access, like floor by floor yep. is a pretty good way to control access. Yep. But it's it seemed kind of odd that like that the optimization was done so rigidly, yeah. like that you can't like you get into a bank and there's like these elevators only go to the sixth floor. Right. Um, so it, there's actually a cooler. So, okay, next time you come and I fly <laughs> you down here, we'll take you to the other building. Okay. So the other building has a very interesting system too. They have like this little I almost iPad like system where you'd go up and you say, I'm going to go to the 23rd floor. Yeah. And so it queues up all the people that are waiting in the elevator bank area. And it says, okay, I have a request for 23, 16, 15. And this thing optimizes the route for an elevator to come and basically hit the right floors to make sure that most people. (laughs) There's actually a lot that goes into like elevator optimizations. I had no idea. I ran into somebody who works in this field. (laughs) I was actually surprised that. Um, this is an old school building, you know. Yeah. That, you know was... I, I once worked in a company that had two floors instead uh... of just the one floor of every other company I worked. <laughs> <in>. <laughs> yeah, this is making me feel very like low tech. So I mean, yeah. if, if we're gonna one up it though, I think we need to go like Amazon grocery store style and just like have facial exactly. recognition that tracks you everywhere. Well, yeah, in the okay. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things. One of the things I'm thinking is that like, so this this security doodad that that. That Safwan has is a little computer. It's got, it's got, it's got like a fingerprint reader and a screen on it. So I don't, I don't see why you make paper badges when right. you should be able to just walk in the door, pick up one of these from a bin. Yeah. Uh, like I, if it's your, if it's your first time in, you'll have to like, I don't know, swipe some sort of, pa- of like government issued ID of some right. sort yep. to get into the system. And then you like, thumbprint yourself on a machine yep. and then you swipe your thumb on the little doodad and all of a sudden that should be connected to your id right so that that like that, that could be completely automated yeah. um so like a little smart um kind of visitor identification system yeah exactly that you hold yeah, while you're that here sounds and- too <laughs> manual i think you still like you, you do a facial recognition and cross um reference it to social media so you can pull the person's <laughs> name and like contacts and where they live and automatically build connection like they pretty easily go like oh this is simon whitmell he's associated with safwan okay so well, there was, probably okay, there, there, visiting was a whole, <laughs> there was a whole like thing for a while i don't know if it's still a thing where you could create uh the was it gravatar it was it was a gravatar, it was an right. avatar like you create a single avatar that you use across a whole bunch of yeah. stuff 
it would be not far off of that to create like service sort of, like what Facebook's trying to do and create just like a single web like presence person like yeah. uh, that you use to like log into online sites but also because it's, you've got it's got your like biometrics tied to it you walk into any building that's tied to that system and yeah. bam it's got yeah. all your information um i think that would be kind of scary to have the internet be able to do that but at yeah. the same time it's not far off like really if facebook had my thumbprint it could already do that i was gonna say have you heard of the nsa <laughs> <laughs> not even they know you're here like, you could do it just by looking at a video of your gate yeah no no I, I, i'm just thinking like in terms of uh I guess, I guess if you did entirely with facial recognition you wouldn't even need a thumbprint yeah, yeah. I, I i don't know how accurately like thumbprints are just nice because it's because it's a really cheap biometric to integrate into things that you're carrying around and things like that yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. uh i mean do you have a, I have a thumbprint reader on my phone i could just basically scan in with my phone and my phone could authenticate off of the building yeah i mean you could do nfc like authentication yeah. with your phone where it just yeah. sort of handshakes into the system um yeah i do like but i do like the like you walk in even the or uh, even amazon go though there's a you you swipe into the into the store, don't you? There's something that you do to identify yourself, and then the cameras start tracking you. Yeah, from I the think point you use the, the swipe, app basically. on your phone. I think yeah, you scan it when you enter. But I mean, it, it's still, like obviously that we're, we'd have to think a little bit uh, future here because Amazon Go, as we said, only supports twenty people. So if you're running a building, beta. you need a little <laughs> bit more capacity. <laughs> But also, I mean, the thing is that the, one of the problems with Amazon Go that I think they're running into is that it's hard to, A, you're tracking paths around a space that doesn't have really linear, like, flows. People yeah. are wandering around to wherever they want, and they're interacting with things, like stopping and interacting with things in random locations. Yeah. Whereas within an office building, most people are going to, like, you can map flow pretty pretty well. Like, everyone who's going to walk in on the main floor is going towards some bank of elevators. Right. Um, so that flow is easy. Uh, you can you could then, like, break it down into, like, you walk through a series of doors. Like, I'm going to go to the elevators. I pick door one through six or something. Right. Based on, actually, will be really cool. So one, one of the things that I was, that I, uh, I found interesting wandering around the jfk airport and then onto the subway is like just the variance in the way that signage is done Mm -hmm. and you could do something with this because you've got biometrics you know who the person is and where they're going you could create customized like directions with like leds and stuff where you'd walk in you like you you swipe your card and like a purple led turns on somewhere where there's like okay go through this door over here and you walk through and you walk through that door there's like another led turns on over a door somewhere over there you just like follow the lights around the building yeah Mm -hmm. like totally totally minority report yeah well it's it's and but it can help you get to where you need to go like it's kind of like you know like the print like the painted lines on the floor um Ooh, actually, so cool. if you just made the entire floor one big LED grid, <laughs> and then, you, then then everyone gets their own little line that they can follow around that around the building, that would actually be really cool, wouldn't it? That would, like smart. Really cool. that would get real difficult for colorblind people. I mean, it would know okay. if you're colorblind and give you like colorblind appropriate colors. Probably. Yeah, or it could be or it could be patterned. I mean, whatever. Yeah, we'll, we'll just or, or just e-ink the entire floor, so it's just like it actually it actually like and. If you go, if you go the wrong, like the wrong direction, like this, like big, like red square appears on the floor yeah. in front of you, being like, "Turn around," <laughs> and then a hole just opens up. Under the- <laughs> I mean, they could give you something just- like a watch that has, uh, like, some kind of tracker, so it's easier to keep track of where you are, and then also like 
projects your directions as a heads up display onto your retina or something. <laughs> well, I, I, like, I'm trying to think of something that would be, I, I like the idea that you're, you basically just, you swipe in and then you, beyond that, you're relying on cameras and facial tracking to yeah. figure out where people are physically. And I think that's enough that you could then project information onto the floor. It wouldn't even need to be like LEDs. You could just, you could probably do it with like overhead projection even at the, it's probably at cost wise, probably similar. You build it into the lighting system almost. Um, but. Uh, some way or another, you create like customized lines on the floor that people can track can follow. This would be really good for hospitals, right? Yeah, I always have this problem in hospitals where it's like, you know, cardiology is here. And yeah, emergency. But they've only got ones for like these three, like the yeah. major things. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that 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 would be cool because it would solve. It kills two birds with one stone. It it, it means you get less people wandering into places they're not supposed to go, and you also get to control the flow of people. So you could do kind of like. Uh, like you could take that optimization they do with the elevators to a whole other level. Yeah. You could do it with like hallway optimization and be like, okay, the this, f- this hallway is full of people leaving the office. We're going to go down this way and go up like, the, right. like the back, the, 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 the sneaky way that like the employees know to get to somewhere else. Like right. now the computer knows that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What if they just had um, like a little, a little like robotic assistant that would be like assigned to you and he'd be like, Hello, Simon. What meal? Well, it's the little, little the mouse, the the mouse droids from uh, Star Wars. They're sort of like yeah. driving around the floor. Yeah, just exactly. Like, like, he like sits time. on your shoulder as you're wandering the building and like tells you where to go. Or just no, it looks. It's a little RC car, like little thing with a has a little flag, and you just follow it. It'll lead you <laughs> around the building. <laughs> and if you go, if you go, the, if you go the wrong way, it like follows you and like nips at your heels, being like, "No, no, don't go that way." I was just gonna say, how do we stop people from going rogue and just not following directions and sneaking off to a side room and etc. How do we Easy. keep? We them? have a pre crimes unit, just like Minority <laughs> Report, and so we've predicted that they're going to do that before. <laughs> well, I think like we can still you can still have doors, and like like it's not like we're we're we have big wide open space they can just wander around. Because the other nice thing then is that basically all the doors can be like locked. By yeah, exactly. Default. Exactly. And then you can only theoretically you can only go where you're supposed to go. Right. Once you get into like office spaces. Only you or somebody you're expecting can walk into your office, kind of thing. Yeah, the doors lock um, or unlock automatically depending on who's in front of them. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it would have to. There would have to be overrides for like safety in case of fires and stuff. But uh, I think, generally speaking, you shouldn't even be. It'd be like your car with the with the like keyless entry. You shouldn't even know that they were locked when you're not there. Um, like you just sort of assume. But you're, by the time you get to the door, it's unlocked if you're supposed to be able to go in there. All right, I'm going to throw like a wrench in this. So okay. one of the typical questions you get asked around here when you say, I'm going to design this very cool futuristic system is, what's your fallback option? So your floor <laughs> stops working or your little robot stops working and your doors are all locked and you're, nobody can get around. What do you do? Well, I would... Yeah, okay. I guess, <laughs> well, the, the, thing, the thing is that you're like, you're failing, fail safe would just mean that you have to be able to get out of any room. You don't need right. to be able to get into any room necessarily. Well, the failsafe is that you have a key fob. Like the, anyone who works there has a key fob. Anyone who doesn't is just stuck until someone comes to get them. Well, I mean, I think, no, but I think like you have, the system knows where everyone is and they know, and it knows what the. So that's one thing. What if it doesn't though? Like if the system loses track of everyone, if the system goes down, you need to be able to basically like, you have to be able to flow out of the building. 
So you've got like downhill is essentially digitally downhill is towards the fire exits. And then you have to be able to open the doors from up, like from upstream manually without, even if the system's down, it's just easy. It's just, you, you have the latches that way. Yeah, exactly. You have, you have, um, unidirectional like doors that open from the inside, for instance, to, to but not from the outside. Yeah. They're, they're push, they're push bars on one side, but a, just a handle on the other. And so if you're, if you're supposed to go into that room, it's unlocked. But if you're inside the room, whether you're, whether you're supposed to be there or not, you can get right. out by pushing the push bar. You know, what's actually a really super cool design idea is a regular doorknob, like the regular handle doors that they have in offices with like the, the bar kind of handle. But you can programmically decide if you want one side, the other side or both sides to open the door. Why hasn't anyone done that? That's kind of a cool idea. It wouldn't be terribly difficult to do. I mean, you just like they're just interlocks inside yeah. the door. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah I I think that would work. That would make a lot of sense. The only thing you'd want again, you'd have to make sure mechanically that it failed safe. So that the like the inside again. I yeah. think the easiest way to imagine it is like every every location in the building has to have a path. That is sort of downwards towards fire exits yeah. down the building out the and door. And it's default open. Yeah. Yeah. It would have to, it would have to, but it would have to be mechanically fail that direct, that yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. So that the system is actively, actively keeping it from doing that. Um, but like it would fail under all circumstances to allow you to get out of the building. I mean, you can still compromise it by being really lucky and pushing your way through people opening doors. Kind of like well, I mean, up, yeah, like, the, like a salmon going upstream, but you'd have to be pretty lucky. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but the thing is, well, okay, if this that would only make sense, like that makes sense if the system's down, you could probably game the system. But if the system is working properly, then if you follow someone through a door you're not supposed to be through, the system still knows you're not supposed to be there, and it can like yeah flash like flash some lights and be like yeah. hey dude turn around no yeah for sure i know i'm talking you. like oceans 11 style where like you bring the system down <laughs> and then you break into the safe or you or you get like a like you get a, a latex mask made with like that tricks the bone sensors to yeah. thinking you're a different person and <laughs> you you, yeah, you okay, smuggle is... a small person inside a suitcase into the building and through the like <laughs> by sending a package to someone i don't remember how that part of it worked yeah as I say, they didn't, they didn't actually check my backpack when I came in. I could have had a small child in there. Yeah, they don't. I mean, typically they don't do that. So you could come in with a suitcase with somebody else in there, and I yeah. guess so. Yeah. Yeah. But okay, that's these. These are very, very edge cases for most. Like for most security situations, we're mostly we're like I think we're just trying to keep people from wandering into places they're not supposed to be. If people are determinedly trying to like get past the system. We just need to function as well as like human security people would in a similar situation. Yeah. Yeah. The goal, the goal is to eliminate the need for the guy at the front desk that like I walk up and I give him my card and I have to already be in the system and I have to like be cleared by him and they got to take my picture and all that stuff. You want to solve the problem that um, a friend of ours has illustrated a number of times in a now famous story involving a, Mm a gaming company that he wandered into and uh, mm-hmm. that problem being somebody you go to the bathroom and as someone's leaving the bathroom, they hold the door open for you and now you're in the building. Yeah. And, and if this, and as long as you look like you're supposed to be there, yeah. most, most people don't know everybody. So nobody's going to call you on, Hey, you don't work here. Yeah. yeah. Like theoretically, 
if they told me to go to the whatever floor and like wait in the area in limbo, but theoretically I could have wandered off, I think. You could have. So the thing that you don't notice here until you forget to wear your badge and you actually work here is that there is actually a lot more people on that floor than you realize. Yeah. And they're just like somewhere in the background. Okay. And they're actually watching. They're you. just watching to see what you're <laughs> yeah, doing. Yeah. And then as soon as you do something wrong, they just like come out of nowhere. It's not like the, casino but, level stuff. But that, but that's the point is there were a lot of people. There's a lot of people. Yeah. And so I say like we, we could probably. We could probably do this a lot more efficiently with yeah. a, with a, with a smart system that can. For sure. So this hinges a lot on facial recognition. So that would be the big, the big question is like the ability yeah. to track people by facial recognition. But I think like cameras are pretty cheap now. You can set cameras yeah. pretty much all over the building. Well, facial, but I think it needs to be a little bit like you have to have sensor fusion to a certain point. I think you can't rely on facial recognition. You have to do facial plus. Um, either a beacon that you give the person or you could do like thermal tracking or you could do gate tracking. Like you can do a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. and fuse it all together. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely, you, they're, you can buy their built in like RFID reading tech that you can build into doors and stuff like that. So it's easy to track like people moving from space to space. Yeah. Um, Cause if you're wearing sunglasses yeah, I, or a hat or like, I don't know, like there's all sorts of situations where it's not going to work. If it's Halloween, like you need to have a, bun- <laughs> a bunch of different sensors. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, like I'm still, I would still be okay with like having a little like thing on a lanyard you wear around your neck that it puts your picture on it and it's tied to that and it has a bunch of like its own little intelligence. So you can make your, they can be little standalone computers. Yeah. But the nice thing like but about that would be that you could reuse it over and over again as opposed to like having to print a paper badge every time. Yeah, because um, you just take it back when the visitor leaves, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Leaving. Yeah, exactly. And and it's and it's kind of like hotel key cards. Like right. the worst thing that could happen is they walk it, they carry it out the door. But as long as the the software on the device knows, okay, it's been this long, you're supposed to have left the building. Yeah. I'm going to revert to default mode. Yeah, and then it's no more useful than any other one that's in the bin. Right. So your biggest your biggest problem there is just loss more than anything. Yeah. Or people purposefully smuggling them out and giving them to their friends. But that's when you get the fusion. That's when it has to be correlated to a facial recognition. Well, and, and I think they still have to be, like, it still has to be activated. Like, you walk in the door, oh. you, you do some sort of login, you have your little dongly thingy, your little, your, your digital, like, security pass. You still gotta, like, put it on, on the table, swipe your card or, or whatever, or put your phone on it. The, the, kiosk you're at talks to the dongle or talks to the badge and uploads information be like yeah you're this person you should be here for this long kind of thing mm-hmm. um, did you did you have that um host person come up to you and say there's coffee and there's snacks and stuff here there was they told me to go to like the help desk and okay. they would like direct me so your little like smart key card could have like a little hologram thing like welcome to so yeah. so please help yourself too <laughs> it, yeah you totally Saffron. Build, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Saffron will be down shortly i'm bothering him right now. yeah yeah no i mean it's it, the, the integration I, I think the way the system worked here makes a lot of sense in terms right. of like it's like go to this place where you, the person will come find you right. and then it notifies the person that is like supposed to meet you so like, i think that works really well it just involved a lot of like people, people. sending messages and yeah. stuff like that so yeah. and, and it required a lot of like setup ahead of time like i couldn't just like drop in to visit you yeah but as long as i'm in the system tied to your name i don't think there's any particular reason why i shouldn't be able to just walk in the door and be like hey they'll swipe it and be like okay you're related like to this person right and then like if i get to limbo and you're like 
I don't want to be responsible for this person being in the building. He'd be like, nope. And then, and then, 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 then just sort of says like, Hey, you got to leave the building. You weren't right. like, you haven't been cleared to go any further. Yeah. I mean, that's, it, it, it's the system theoretically works behind the scenes. I, I, it's just a matter of it requires a lot of like human intelligence right now. And I think we can move a lot of that to the computer. Cool. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Let's ship it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think the, the product now is that smart, like smart lanyard thing. Yeah. And, and then the, okay. So the requirements are smart lanyard thing and online biometric information that you can pull. Yep. Cool. Sounds like a plan. Get rid of humans. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, we just moved the humans to like behind the scenes IT maintaining the system. (laughs) (laughs) They're the fail safe. It's probably still going to require the same number of people. (laughs) They'll just be behind the scenes like fixing cameras and stuff. (laughs) Shift the... Resetting the AI when it turns into, like, murder bot mode. You know, when it goes all Skynet. Uh, okay, I like that. Cool. We're uh, a- Any last thoughts before we get back to... That actually segues reasonably nicely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Big, big computers, learning, possibly becoming Skynet. Yep. <laughs> deep. So deep, deep learning, learning and big data are terms that get thrown around a lot at least in our circles so i'm gonna ask you guys a question then where do you hear big data well we're uh we i I went to a conference uh last week on industry 4.0 okay um which one of the big cornerstones of industry 4.0 and like the industrial internet of things is big data data collection like analytics and all that so it's it's one of those things that everyone bandies about when they're like, okay, we're going to make it, we're going to be more techie. We're going to have big data. And that's right. about as far as they get most of the time. Like, it's just, we're going to have more data and more data is better data as far as anyone's concerned. So that's actually very interesting because this is one of the things that actually it feeds into, um, deep learning and why, uh, it's become so uh, prevalent today. It's because of this whole trend towards we want more data collect as much data as possible. We don't know what we're going to do with it yet, but you know, we'll figure that out later. Just collect, collect, collect. So yeah. I would ask like, what do you think quantifies? Like, you, you know, we know megabytes, gigabytes, terabytes. So what do you think quantifies as like big data? How big is big data? How big is big data? I don't know. That's a good question. This is something that I found very interesting because before I was thinking, okay, so if you have like a file that's, I don't know what, like, you know, one gig or something and you're processing this file, it sounds like a big amount of data. Yeah. But in reality, a lot of these systems, they process like terabytes of data per hour or even petabytes. Um, If you think of all the stuff that Facebook and Google are collecting on you in order for them to do a lot of the stuff that they do, uh, it's actually like exabytes, probably. Man, these are big, scary words. Okay. Okay, what's... For for people... I I assume a lot of people know what we're talking about, but like, let's let's, let's put this in context. A, A terabyte... Which is what people, most people know. Most people know because they can buy a terabyte hard drive now. Right. But now we got next one up is petabytes. Petabyte, I, I think, think petabyte is a thousand. thousand terabytes. Yeah. So and then exabyte is. I a think thousand. it's exabyte. We'd have to Wikipedia this. I actually don't even know what happens about. Okay, we're talking. We're talking a million times bigger than like a hard drive you can buy right now. Yeah. So yeah. It, it is. It is to a terabyte what a terabyte is to a kilobyte. Am I doing the math right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I'm really bad at mental math. <laughs> yeah. This is why we have computers, guys. We don't need to do this in our heads. <laughs> yeah. This is why we can ask Google, and then Google will know that exactly. we don't know what an exabyte is. <laughs> yep. Anyway, yes. 
Ridiculous, so, ridiculous amounts of data. Yeah. Did you guys see recently the article that Amazon was talking about how they had built a truck that basically is a giant storage hard like oh, a, yeah. a giant storage a ro- unit? Because basically <laughs> they they figured that sending data from data center to data center is too slow. And the, mm-hmm. f- the fastest way to do it is actually build a truck that is basically like full of hard drives. Oh my God. They have these special yeah. modules think that are of like that full of hard drives. <laughs> And it, they pull it up to like next to a data center, download the data center onto the truck and drive it to the other data and center. They physically drive the data. Yeah. That seems And that is the fastest weird. way. That's, that gives you an idea of like what kind of quantity of data we're talking about. Because if you think about like, you can send a lot of things over the internet using your regular ISP, you know, internet connection that you get from Rogers or Yeah, Verizon, I, mean, right? I mean, now you can get almost... Like you have crazy fast internet, I have crazy right? fast. I, I, have, I have fiber fiber into my house. So yeah. theoretically, like when I download stuff from Steam or from Microsoft, I can get like many, many megabytes per second down. Right. Like multiple megabytes per second down, which would have been unheard of even a few years ago. Right. Like at, at this point, the bottleneck most times is the upload server, not right. my like internet connection. So that tells you, yeah, how big those tr- that truck has to be data wise. Mm-hmm. And, th- and this is like your consumer level internet, right? So if you if you're Amazon, you have like fat pipes. Like you are literally <laughs> <laughs> you are literally connected to like the backbone of the internet. Like there, I, I don't even know how this all works, but I read about it once. I went down this Wikipedia wormhole of like <laughs> how is the internet connected? Like really connected? We actually we, we want to do an episode about that at some point. We got to find somebody who knows, like yeah. actually knows how this works because. Yeah, it's it's a pretty crazy world once you get into like right. how there's, data actually gets from point A to point B. There's wires like literally <laughs> across underneath the Atlantic, I and mean, that is like transmitting like bytes across. Right, it's kind of really cool. Yeah, the crazy thing is there are there are multiple ships that like because it, it's a piece of, of dedicated equipment to lay like undersea cable. It's a big ship that's designed specifically to do it because they got to make they're right. constantly connecting cable end-to-end in order to put it at the bottom of the sea. And there are multiple ships that just constantly go back and forth across, like, the Atlantic, just laying more and more cable across. Right. Because there's always demand for more data transfer across, to like, between Europe and North America. That's fascinating. So, like, hmm. like there are people whose, their job is just to go back and forth every time they just lay new cable. It's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. So, this is, I mean, that's the kind of size of data that, like, big companies, big tech companies specifically, are... Um, are kind of dealing with and it's something that kind of shocked me about a year ago when i realized from my small town um, views of what big data was i'm like <laughs> i'll be dealing with gigabytes and then it's like no you you got to process like you know a million things in like a second and it's it's quite a lot in your data is coming from all kinds of disparate sources yeah um so typically when somebody says i am going to build a big data system they specifically are referring to um, a system which typically the input into the system is data coming from all kinds of sources, right? So you could say I have uh, some data that I need on a database here. I have some data that I need on a database in, I don't know, maybe in Asia for whatever reason, right? And so this all comes into your big black box, which is like your big data system. And the first um, kind of layer, I'll call it a layer, that you have in your system is something called ETL, which um, stands for Extract, Transform, and Load. So you can think of it like this thing is what's just sucking up all this data, maybe normalizing it, cleaning it up, Right. Maybe you don't care about certain parts of that big data for whatever reason. So you'll drop that part. Um, you'll transform some of the data to get it into a format that the rest of your system, um, you can think of it like a pipeline, mm-hmm. right? So this is your input. So you're going to like get all this data from different sources, normalize it so that it's ready to go into your pipeline. 
and your pipeline is basically going to be tuned to take, let's say, petabytes of data, apply some logic, right? I'm saying some logic in the sense that depending on what your application is, what you might want to do is, uh, let's say I want to get every tweet that uh, is sent out on Twitter. I want to analyze it, uh, analyze the tweets that mention uh, Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And I want to basically, let's say, take account of those tweets, mm-hmm. right? So you'll take all the tweets in into your EDL. You'll basically filter out all the tweets that maybe are you think are spam accounts or something like that. Then you'll push it into your next layer, and your layer will say, okay, I'm going to count all the ones if they have the word Donald Trump or variation of the word Donald Trump, or maybe they have you know, the United States presidents or president or POTUS and stuff like that. And then you'll feed it into the next layer, which would be you could have multiple layers that do different things with it. Um, but if all you're trying to do is just count, then you could just say this is the end of your big data problem. Mm-hmm. And you just spit out, okay, there are, you know, X number of tweets about Donald Trump today. Right. So this, like, this is one of the things I'm not sure. Whenever, <laughs> when I imagine big data, I'm always still imagining, like, latent analysis. But it sounds like you're talking about, like, you're having stuff flowing in constantly. It's not like you have a data set where it's like, okay. I'm, I've got a whole bunch of data from the last year. I'm going to, like, there's... I guess, like, where do you draw the line between, like, data mining and, right. like, big data, like, the way you're describing where it's constantly flowing in? So, yeah, so we'll use more specific terms. So the problem that I describe is called, like, a streaming problem. So oh, you have okay. data streaming in, right? And then you have the other t- type of problem, which is um, batch processing, right? So I have, let's say, a dump of data for the last one year or, yeah. you know, whatever, I'm going to mine it. Or um, I have all this data sitting around, and now I have a new kind of novel way of implementing some algorithm let me go set off a job that is going to go crunch through all this data. It'll take like a week or maybe a month, right, mm. to crunch through because there's so much data for such a big period of time. So there's different types of problems that you solve um, with big data. Typically, what you see is a lot of times you have a combination, right? So you could have basically a big data problem that is solving um, over the last one year. I'm going to do some algorithm and apply it onto this. But also, as I get new live data flowing in, I'm going to add that onto my existing data. Oh. Right, so most of the problems kind of do a combination of the two. They're typically they're called streaming problems, so your data streaming in. Yeah. Um, and then you have like batch processing typically. Huh. And these like batch processing jobs kind of give you an idea. Um, so you would use different kind of software packages to do this. I mean, you could roll your own kind of software package to do it. Um, but one of the big breakthroughs was something um, that was created in inside Google. It was called um, MapReduce. Uh, is generally like a data platform to take a lot of data mm-hmm. and apply these two kind of fundamental operations to them, which tend to be uh, something that you can apply. Is you can map, let's say, your function. You write something that says takes two inputs and adds them, right? Um, that's actually an example of a reduce operation. But you can say, I'm going to take, uh, take a function and I'm going to multiply every input by two mm. and give it back to you. That's kind of like a map function. Uh, it's getting a bit technical, but generally there was <laughs> this, this framework called MapReduce, and then from there... Um, there was some other developments and now one of the big de facto software packages that you would use if you're writing one of these data problems, big data problems that I described is something called Apache Spark. Um, I think in Stack Overflow's like developer survey, this is like the number one, like jobs, the number of highest paying jobs and stuff in this whole, uh, software engineering industry is really right now in that whole area of big data expertise. Hmm. Um, and typically it's developing jobs that, you know, take a whole bunch of data and it takes a week, maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks to crunch, maybe a whole day. Right? Mm. It just varies depending on what you're what you're solving for. Um, and these are jobs that are basically you'll take your data um, and you'll write this job and it'll like massively parallelize it. So it'll send out to like a cluster of like you know 200 computers, let's say, 
and it's all resilient and fault tolerant. So let's say if one of your nodes go down, you don't have to start this computation again from the very beginning. Um, you can just kind of spin up another node somewhere and that'll just take over from the one that failed. Um, and so you're, you kind of maintain your state that way. And there's this orchestration of all these servers and um, kind of hardware resources that you need in order to crunch through this much amount of data uh, is all given to you through these software packages like Apache Spark. Hmm. Yeah, so when you hear big data, it's basically, it's, it's that. Yeah, and I, and I guess you could do, like, if you're talking about streaming data from a bunch of different places, you can distribute, like, your first layer of processing or first couple layers of processing can happen wherever the data is being produced. Try to boil right. it down to something so you're not sending all the data to a central location exactly. before you aggregate it and things like that. Yeah. Huh. A lot of times these streaming problems are so large that they do kind of local data centers will take in some amounts of data. They'll do some level of operation and send it to like a more remote location where they're being processed even more or they're being like warehouses. Data warehousing is one whole thing where they'll do some processing, store it into some sort of big storage system, which will be accessed later. So there's a lot of um, products that you use right now that are probably collecting a lot of data from you that is not used in any meaningful way currently, but they're collecting it because storage is cheap. Yeah. Right? Why not collect it? Tomorrow you might have a an application that requires this, and it would be a shame that if you didn't have it, have this data for you know the last one year. And so, data is like you know when you have that kind of data, that's a lot of uh, powerful things that you have, powerful things that you can do. Mm. You can sell it. <laughs> you could sell it. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's say like Google knows everywhere that I've been, like because of yeah. my because uh, of my GPS, it's it knows like every path I've taken. Yep. It probably doesn't use ninety nine percent of that data, but someday, years from now. Right. Google could pull it out and be like, here's a heat map of everywhere you've ever been in the last like right. 10 years. Yeah. And I don't know what they do with that, but it'd probably be sinister. Yeah, I think I read this a while back, like when they first started, <laughs> when they first started getting like DNA analysis and stuff done, like I think back then what the uh, police department started doing is just collecting DNA samples. Like I don't think they had like the technology to figure out how to you know, use DNA evidence in like a, in a court case to like, you know, either acquit someone or prove their guilt. But they started collecting it ahead of time because they were like, okay, we'll get there eventually. The technology will get there. Yeah, we just Let's need just, to have it behind the scenes. We need to have it behind the scenes. I read that somewhere and I was like, this is kind of a similar situation where it's like collect more than you need. Huh. Because storage is so cheap now, especially for larger companies. Like, you know, it costs pennies to store all this information. But the value, a product that you make, like... Uh, the Google Photos app, for example, can deliver so much value and give you so much future revenue that you would just say, okay, you know what? It's the cost analysis makes sense. Store all the things you can right now. Hmm. Yeah. So, all right. So that's that's big data. Right. And now let's go back. Let's let's loop around to that first conversation we had about... Deep learning. Well, yeah. What, did, did we write down all the like words we wanted to define? Or have, I've already well, forgotten There was support the vector word. machines and... Something else. I forget. I don't know. Let's start with um, so AI. Like we started, we started talking. You guys have talked about AI, right? We've, Artificial we've, intelligence. Yeah, we've talked about it as a usually as a tool for our engineering things, but we haven't really talked. We've talked that about parts much. of AI because we did we did neurofuzzy, we did uh, genetic algorithms. Like mm-hmm. we've done some aspects of it. Right. Yeah, we we've looked at ways you could implement AI. The general premise being like you have you write a smart computer program that is capable of learning. Right. Mm-hmm. Using some mechanism, um, you then have a bunch of, let's say, data that you have uh, and you run it through this algorithm and you train it so that it learns certain parameters about um, the nature of the problem that it's designed to solve. And you run it through all these training kind of systems offline. 
typically. And then when you think that you have sufficient accuracy, however you define that, right? You then let it loose on out in the world and you say, okay, whenever you see something like this, run it through your machine learning algorithm and give me some output. Right. That's typically the every machine learning problem really at a high level boils down to this is that there is no software engineer sitting there coding the exact every possible case that um, this software program can encounter. Well, yeah, it's, it, actually, you want to avoid coding exactly. as much as possible because the, you're, the less you code, the less constrained the way it can learn is, right? Right, and you have computer resources, so what you can do is you can leave something training for, like, you know, typically like an hour, maybe two hours, but in the case of deep learning, months, you know, years, if you wanted to, yeah. you could be training, and you can train in different ways. So all of these, like, general class of machine intelligent um, or artificial intelligence algorithms or machine learning algorithms fall into this kind of category. And there's different ways, there's different classes of um, approaches that have been generally better suited to solve specific problems. That's typically where the different things like your um, genetic algorithms come in mm-hmm. or, um, or the you know, support vector machines. I don't actually know a lot of details about support vector machines. <laughs> so you're just dropping that to sound smart. <laughs> dropping names. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I did like look at them a long time ago when I was in grad school, but I never actually wrote one or, you know. Can, can you like give us a really high level definition? I, it's escaping me right now. I mean, I have to I'm in the same boat. I looked at them a long time ago enough to remember the yeah. name, but that's about as far as I ever got to. Like, Genetic algorithms, like the name kind of implies what it's kind of doing with generations right, right, and stuff. Right. With support vector machines, like I'm just seeing phasers going everywhere. Like. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but it's another, it's another approach to machine to learning. Machine learning. Right. It's okay. different ways of machine learning. And there's actually a whole bunch of ways that you could do machine learning. Um, and the one that we'll focus on is neural networks, right? So it's right. basically you develop a machine learning algorithm where you have these fundamental units that are capable of learning simple things. Um, and you call them like a, let's say one of the words that they use is perceptron, right? It's a simple unit. It takes an input. It's going to apply some sort of simple function to it. You can say add two to my input mm. and produce an output. So this represents a neuron in your neural network, right? And the idea for neural networks is you connect a whole bunch of these neurons. Um, and later we'll talk about like how you have specific neurons for specific types of problems or specific units, they call them, um, in neural networks. But generally you kind of develop this network which is capable of taking some input let's say you're trying to do object recognition right so given a picture that is your input uh, maybe there's a car in the picture you feed it into this neural network and you want to say neural network tell me what is the object in this picture and you want the output to be car the mm-hmm. word car um, and so you would have this kind of network of these small small units that are kind of tuned through the training process in different ways um, and they go through stages. Uh, you'll often hear um, of the word layers. So you can think of you have a whole bunch of neurons at one layer, and they kind of their inputs are fed into the next layer, mm. and their inputs are fed into the next layer, and ultimately they're fed to the output layer. Um, and so that's what a neural network is. And just like genetic algorithms um, and support vector machines, they are just another way of doing machine intelligence. I know what support vector machines are now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I remember were you badly Wikipediaing. Yeah, we exactly. And I now remember why I lo- I know I used to know what they were because a lot of my thesis was based on classification, and so support vector machines are a way of classifying things. Where if you think about a two D, um, like plane, basically, like you think about a two dimensional plane and you have dots on it, what they do is basically classify by trying to find a separation between one type of dot, another type of dot that's as wide as possible. 
and then you map dots to either side of that gap and that will therefore classify them and then if you have uh like non-linear separations where you have some sort of weird contour that separates certain types of dots you can use what's called the kernel trick to basically throw them into a higher ah. plane of existence and then when you bring them back you get kind of a weird <laughs> shape that defines how they're uh how they're separated but basically it's a classification tool that you use to essentially f- learn where the gap is between different types of points hmm. like you take a whole bunch of dots that you know these dots are cars these dots are not cars and then when i take a dot i don't know i map it onto that 2d plane and just depending on which side of the line it falls on it's either a car or not a car yeah it's in in its simplest case it's called a non-probabilistic binary linear classifier so it's ah, a, it's a linear classifier that's binary um, non-probabilistically um in, these, in are, these are these are words that you would say if you wanted to sound super smart yeah it's working without yeah. You're so smart Pete. <laughs> well, i mean all of those words make sense given the context in and of themselves it's just putting them all together it, this entire field is very like uh, you have to have a lot of domain knowledge um to kind of make sense of how and like how do, how do you know that support vector machines are really good at one problem as opposed to another and it's a very like research heavy field where like you're keeping up to date with all the papers that are being published at these conferences you're seeing you know the state of art um kind of journal articles that are being released and what people are seeing and the stuff kind of changes a lot and there's a lot of domain specific knowledge that you need to have that's what makes it very complicated for people to get into and typically yeah. it's done at the grad school level but i guess like to, to call back to a previous episode um like this and a whole bunch of other techniques they all have really fancy names and behind the scenes a whole bunch of crazy math is happening but like calling back to the fuzzy logic at the end of the day the all it's doing is trying to take something like car or like warm that is hard to quantify and turn it into a quantifiable value that a computer can do something with exactly i was going to say that um the interesting thing is at the core of a lot of learning and a lot of machine learning and a lot of all of these different techniques is just basic probability techniques. Like I've taken whole courses on AI and courses on neurofuzzy and all that kind of stuff. And basically it all just generally comes down to probability. If you yeah. have a pretty good um, background in stats and probability, you can pretty much do most of AI. Yeah. There was a really interesting uh, example I was seeing on, uh, Oh, I got to look up. So there was one open source uh, machine learning toolkit that somebody created that's been used for a whole bunch of neat stuff. And it was basically just at its core, all it did was took a bunch of text data and learned how to write text data similar to that. Um, and that all it didn't care what the text data was. It just looked for patterns reinforced as I think it was a neural network. It basically reinforced Right. The more it saw certain patterns, it would reinforce those neurons. And then those neurons would, when you asked it to generate new data, you'd get something that t- had those blobs of data in that way, in that order. And then c- constructs built out of those blobs of data and it built its way up until you had a document. Okay. And you could use that to create anything that you could turn into a stream of text. Huh. So you could use it, you could teach it to write music because um, because MIDI music data is just a string of text. Hmm. Yep. Um, it's a series of commands, but when you boil it down to it, it's, it's just note on 56, note on 72, note off 56. And you're, as notes turn, start and stop at various times in the MIDI controller. 
Um, and so you could make a computer that would write, that would write Baroque sounding music right. by just taking a whole bunch of Bach, boiling it down into MIDI text, right. feeding it to the, to this computer. And the computer knew how to write stuff that was like that. And so it made new music. It was. That's awesome. Most of it was horrible, but yeah. it, but like it's because you could boil it down to a math problem that a computer could solve. Right. That was that was the hard work was making it into something a computer could read. Yep. As opposed to actually getting the computer to do the learning because that toolkit already exists. Right. Uh, which was I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Neural networks are used a lot in this kind of generative way. So it's like you generate some you know music or you generate like a painting. One of the coolest things that I think is currently in deep learning is something called. Um, genetically, what is it called? Something adversarial networks. It's called GANs. Okay. Uh, so basically, this idea here. This is apparently this guy in Montreal. I think at McGill uh, was out drinking with his buddies, and they were just like arguing about something, and kind of hit him when he was out drinking and came home <laughs> half drunk. Kind of try to implement this idea, and this idea is that if let's say you have two neural networks, right? And they're kind of in an adversarial kind of um, way that they're set up. So one is meant to generate, let's say, paintings, right? And the other one's um, role is to act as a critic, to say, <laughs> yes, that is a real painting, or no, that is not a real painting, right? And they kind of, like, you train these two neural networks to kind of, uh, you train them independently. Right? You train one to say, okay, this is a real painting, this is a fake painting, this is a real painting, this is a fake painting. The other one, you're like, okay, this is how you paint, right? They're very different in their structure. You connect them together, right? And now you have... One that is generating a painting, the other one's like, nope, that's not a painting. <laughs> this one is now basically saying, okay, let me try something different. Generating another painting, so like, yep, that's a painting. This one now adjusts its weights. So oh. it's basically the holy grail of machine learning is to get to kind of unsupervised learning, right? I was going to say, like, if you teach one robot to to uh, to beat the Turing test, and one robot to, to administer the Turing test, exactly. Do we end, do we end up with, like, an actual, <laughs> yeah. like, conversational AI? Right. I mean, you just basically, because, I mean, you know, computer cycles are cheap, right? So you basically set loose this, these two neural networks that are just going to improve each other, right? It's a very interesting way, and there is no uh. human intervention required. There was an article in Wired um, today about this... Uh, I think they're called genetically adversarial um, networks. It's a branch of deep learning. And one of the fathers of deep learning, um, Jan LeCun, he's from um, NYU. He basically said this is one of the most exciting fields in uh, deep learning right now is this whole concept of... That's crazy. That's super cool. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you spend so much time with like networks just generating and test... like teaching the network and then seeing whether the network is learning the way you want it to. And, exactly. And, and trying to find... Like keep an eye on it and see when it's overtraining and or when you're starting to like drift off of your yeah. your your optimal uh, solution. If you can automate that process, then you right. you can run at whatever computer thinking speed. Even with um, AlphaGo, when when DeepMind, that's the branch of Google um, that developed AlphaGo, and then they beat um, Lisa Dahl last year. When they were talking about how they actually did it, they used a lot of deep learning techniques, and they said initially they started off, they collected all this data and about how players played in online, like kind of this online Go website or something that people were playing. So they collected all this data from there and they used that to train the network. So like, look at what humans are doing, mm -hmm. learn what they're doing, and they train this algorithm based on that. And eventually they came to a point where the Go algorithm, the deep learning algorithm was sufficiently far enough that it was not learning anymore from the humans. So what it did is it started playing games against older generations of itself. Hmm. So they just basically let this thing sit there, play an older generation of itself, and get better at beating an older generation of itself, 
and then take that generation and kind of repeat the cycle onwards. So you, you can boot- bootstrap yourself to like right. the ultimate Go robot. And then you kind of get this. The problem with a lot of these deep learning approaches is that you actually don't know what the computer is going to do. Like you don't <laughs> know. There's so many layers. There's so much complexity that is encoded into this network, right? After you've trained it, and there, like, it's just. I mean, maybe a really highly theoretical person can kind of you know work their way through it. But even when uh, AlphaGo was playing the human player, everyone was commenting on there's a lot of moves that are not human-like. Like, it's not what a human would do. It's not part of the human strategies that, you know, a Go player would do in their opening move, for example. But somehow, you know, even the most professional people who are watching this algorithm take unusual moves, and it kind of made sense later on. Like, it was strategies that I had like, kind of laid the groundwork for. Hmm. And so now the humans are saying, you know, we've learned a lot about how you have to play against an AI. Like, it's making their game a bit better because now they're uh, focused on more, like, creative ways that typically are not done. Hmm. So it's kind of, it's really interesting. Yeah, if you have a chance, I'd highly recommend going back and at least watching some of the more pivotal moments in the games. There's There are a couple of points where the... Uh, they have the the different rankings for for go i forget what they're called and uh they had a, a very highly ranked uh commentator and he was like yeah there's a couple moments where they just basically like are start flipping out because <laughs> the ai is like making moves that like they're like what the hell is going on like this is it's like they just don't understand and then they're just like oh my god this is like their minds are just totally blown it's really cool to watch someone at that level of something just totally look at a computer and be like, this is like the most unbelievable Bonkers. thing I've ever seen. That's awesome. Yeah. I, 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 I'm just, a, again, the easiest thing for me to, to, to wrap my head around because I've, I, I've spent a lot of time on, on like YouTube watching videos of people like training and then like training neural networks to do things. And, uh, it's, it's surprisingly interesting, but also incredibly boring because they're just doing the same thing over and over again. Right. But one of the things that's really cool is things like the music generative programs you you feed it a whole bunch of um like a whole bunch of music from a bunch of different composers from a similar time period and what you end up with because like if you train if you if you train one network with just one composer eventually you get to the point where all the network does is spits out that composer's works right. over and over again but if you jam in a bunch of different composers with the different styles, then it can't settle on any one style. And so what you end up with is this really weird thing that, again, they tend to pick people from different eras of music and, and do a bunch of things of training with those. And you end up with music, which if you've listened to a lot of music from there is like, you can pick out things. You're like, yeah, that's very Baroque. Yeah. But then you're like, but. They, you would never ever write that because you're like right. listening to it. And it's like these harmonies are so weird, and but at the same time, like it's doing proper counterpoint. It's just that the it's it's doing it in ridiculous modes. I'm using words that now are I'm alienating alienating our audience with a different would uh, you, kind of gobbledygook. Would you say that it's a little <laughs> bit baroque? Uh. <laughs> anyway, my point was that you like. That the, the thing is, what you get out of it, nobody really knew going into this. You fe- feed it a bunch of different composers. You don't really know what you're going to get out of it. You don't yeah. know if you like the music you're going to get out of it is would be considered music, quote unquote. Right. Uh, even though you can pick out things in it that are very much like musical, uh, you still don't know. Again, and, and it, it comes down to somebody then like programming a computer, be like, yes, this is broke music or this is not, and and I don't know. Uh, 
at that point, who knows what will come out of that system. <laughs> it's interesting because uh, this touches on a little bit a topic that we've uh, talked about in the past when we were doing AI, which is uh, the fact that humans are, are very bad at understanding the context of exponential growth. And, and in this case, like very, very large um, collections of information. Like if you thought, think about deep learning, deep learning is basically giving an algorithm the ability to learn something by performing an action hundreds of millions of times, which it's hard for you to understand in, like in your head how that happens and what comes out of it. And if you think about AI, and the way that AI learns, it's basically applying the same thing, but over time, hundreds of billions and trillions of times, which is why the growth of AI in articles like the one we linked to before from uh, the... Wait, but why? Um, you can look that up or we'll post to it again. It talks about that exponential curve and how humans understand that if you have an AI that can do something in the year 2010, because it has the ability to grow exponentially by the year 2015... It's not twice as good. It's like thousands of times better. And then by 2016, it's millions of times better. By 2018, it's hundreds of millions of times better. Like the gap between iterations of and large jumps in performance can be extremely rapid. And so in big data and in deep learning and in AI, you come across the same problem that generally humans don't understand scale very well. You can't just wrap your yeah, yeah. you can't wrap your head around it. Mm-hmm. Well, when you say like it takes it takes a human, it's it's kind of been debunked. But like, if it takes a human ten thousand hours to become an expert at something, and a computer can do what a human's doing ten thousand times as fast, then right. it's an expert after an hour. What happens, like if you 10, run it for twenty years later? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it's when it's been working on this like effectively longer than any human has ever done anything, what what do you get out of that? Exactly. <laughs> One of the other interesting things is that these concepts that are used in um, deep learning, there's, like deep learning is more of like a broad uh, kind of generalization of a whole bunch of different um, types of neural networks. So there's um, something called convolution neural networks that are typically used for um, image, uh, like object recognition. This is the stuff that your Google Photos is doing. Mm. Um, and they, they're convolution neural networks because of the, the way they're structured. And on top of that, some of the units that they use use the convolution function, the mathematical function of convolution. Um, there's also like recurrent neural networks that are more for like time series data. So if you're trying to like uh, look at what a stock price is over the last like, you know, one year and then you're trying to feed in some sort of um, sentiment analysis from what people are saying on Twitter and then you're trying to do a prediction of I think the stock price is going to go um, high or low today. So therefore, I'm going to take a position on that stock like that kind of stuff is done generally with recurrent neural networks. But a lot of these concepts that go into these different types of deep learning algorithms They've been around for a long time, actually. And this blew my mind. Like, it, they've been around from the 80s. Hmm. Um, and part of the reason why they failed at that early age is because while they were, they were just too ahead of its time. Like, it was the, the, fundamentally it made sense. But A, there was not enough data at that time. Computers were, like, think about what computers were at in the 1980s versus where they are today. Mm-hmm. Right? And um, so there was a lot of, like, it was just too early for its time. And then there was a certain, you know, bunch of breakthroughs in this field in about 2007, I think 2008, by um, one of the people Jeff, is Jeffrey uh, Hinton from the University of Toronto. And this is actually why uh, he's considered one of the fathers of deep learning, too. And this is why um, Google is now opening up another little center for AI in Toronto, actually. I think that was announced, like, last month or so. 
Um, and Woo, Toronto. Yeah, and it's affiliated with the University of Toronto because a lot of the work that Jeffrey Hinton does there and a lot of the um, graduate studies that are happening at the University of Toronto would be a good fit for Google. So they're opening up an office there. Um, but he had a lot of like breakthrough work around, you know, 2007, 2008. At the same time, you have all this like big data phenomenon that's sort of starting to like boil in the background. Storage is becoming cheap. Uh, people are realizing you can collect a lot of information, do analytics, and then actually generate products that, you know, give you a lot more revenue. Uh, people are kind of realizing that at the same time. And, at this, you know, all of these old uh, deep learning algorithms come back from the dead. And now they're basically, they're giving very surprising results with the resources and stuff that you have in place. Um, and so it's kind of steamballing slow, like, what is it? Snowballing? Snowballing. <laughs> steamballing. Steamballing. <laughs> Steamrollering? Snowballing. Steamrolling? Yeah. It's steamrolling. Guys, steam I'm coming up with words. It's with a steamrolling out of snow. <laughs> it's a word that you normally wouldn't use, but trust me, <laughs> it's ahead of its time. Yes. Um, but it's snowballing. It's snowballing. And um, with this whole thing with AlphaGo, I think a lot of people, even in the field, were really surprised at the results. I think even the people at DeepMind didn't realize that they would have as much success as they did. But it's kind of crazy that it's like the sense of time is like very difficult to figure out and a lot of times you have these things that are so ahead of its time and then uh you don't think you you know you're sufficiently far ahead and all of a sudden you have ais beating people like go uh it's kind of kind of crazy yeah well the thing that i hadn't really wrapped my head around until you were talking about like the big data uh distributed uh number crunching that's going on is that the growth potential for processing these kinds of of ai projects is no longer limited by like Moore's law, like the, no. the doubling every year of processing power, because as soon as you can push that processing to a thousand computers or N computers, you now have the ability to grow your rate at which your intelligence can learn by an essentially infinite amount. Cause you just keep adding more computers to it. And here's a crazier thing is that a lot of these algorithms and deep learning specifically, they don't even use CPUs. They're all using GPUs yeah. because mm-hmm. they can be massively parallelized. So, Imagine that you're sending out this training algorithm uh, to a thousand computers, a thousand computers with maybe you know 10, 15 GPUs with like a thousand cores inside that are doing parallel processing, right? Yeah. And now with TensorFlow, you know Google has developed like their own custom like hardware. They're called um, TPUs or Tensor Processing Units that cut out all the crap that you don't need in a GPU. You don't need you know shaders and all this fancy <laughs> stuff for graphics, right? They're just using that kind of GPU inspired architecture for the massive parallelism that it brings them. And they're, you know, stuffing their racks in their data center with these TPUs, these specific hard- hardware pieces that are made to just crunch numbers for deep learning algorithms, which is kind of mind boggling that you could do that. Yeah. There was an awesome article on uh, recently uh, about TPUs on Wired. Yeah. Um, it was like in the last uh, couple of weeks, it was or one week ago, there was uh, an article on TPUs in Wired magazine. It was like super interesting talking about the development of them, where they came from what they use them for and exactly what you're saying, how they, they now it's basically helped them avoid having to build like dozens of extra data centers. They don't need anymore. Yeah. Cause and, you, you boil down a computer to the, just the thing you need. Exactly. For... One of the interesting things is that they, they kind of optimize it for like an energy footprint that is best for this kind of, like they cut out all the cruft, right? But if you think of their scale, like the amount of processing that they're doing, it actually costs them. Like when you're training this algorithm, it's costing you like actual dollars, right? Yeah. At the bottom of the day, uh, end of the day. So it's like you're actually generating, making hardware. It's cheaper for you to make your own custom hardware to save on the energy costs alone <laughs> <laughs> for your data center. Yeah. Which is fascinating. Well, I guess, I guess it makes sense. Cause I mean, when you, when you look at, uh, 
the human human brain takes up what twenty percent of your body's energy on a regular day. Yeah. So when you consider we're just basically creating, we're, each of these TPUs is a cluster of neurons in a brain that right. covers like half the Earth. Right. You're it's gonna it's gonna be energy uh, energy hogging if you're not optimizing that. Uh, Our future overlords are gonna need all the power they can have. Yeah. Really. <laughs> <laughs> start bombing down right now and the really cool thing with um with tensorflow specifically is that you can write these um you know deep learning algorithms on your laptop uh train it on a big cluster with a data center with gpus tpus cpu whatever you whatever pus you want right you train it on that but then you can kind of generate this small like compact model that you deploy on somebody's smartphone right so when they take a picture um you're using the results of all that vast amounts of computing to come up with this one model, you're just deploying it to somebody's smartphone, which has much more limited, um, you know, hardware resources. But it's able to take a picture in and say, okay, there's a, here's Simon, here's his wife, here's his kid. Like, yeah. you know, doing all that kind of stuff offline is really cool. So it's it's only actually the learning process that needs the huge, right. the huge processing. Once once you've figured out how to make it work, you can boil it down to a way more. Yeah, there's ways to compact it down, and I, that's Tensor, crazy. TensorFlow specifically runs on like you know Mac, Linux, Windows, TPUs, Android, iOS, Raspberry Pi. You pick it, right? And their whole um, angle is that you know this is the one framework where you can write these systems, these algorithms that you can you know the researcher with a PhD is experimenting. He can use that. He can give it off to the data scientist. So you can give it off to the like you know software engineer who's going to actually productionize this thing, mm. and this thing is ready to be deployed. Yeah, which is actually a huge, huge deal. So that's awesome. Um, mm-hmm. This is crazy, uh, but we're gonna run out of time soon. So I, we, we, I don't think we touched on. Uh, we were gonna say deep versus shallow. Yeah, so deep versus shallow is just the number of layers that you have in your network, right? So typically, if you think of, if you go back to the explanation of neural networks, um, you typically have. Uh, layer of neurons or units that are doing your processing and if you have a shallow network you have fewer layers okay deep network deep learning is basically talking about the fact that you have tons of layers mm. at that point it could get much more complex right yeah. like the changes that are happening between input and output right because you can do a bunch of different changes yeah and there's a whole bunch of other concepts in the training process like you know back propagation and stuff where the size of your network or the, the depth of your network really makes it computationally um, intensive mm-hmm. for the training process. Yeah. So this is why sometimes you'll have things that take, you know, months to train or weeks to train. Right. If you think about it in terms of traditional programming, it's kind of like doing nested functions where you have a function that returns something inside, another one that returns something inside, another one that returns something, but then you start doing 20 or 30 of them at once and all the outputs cross and go to other ones that go inside other ones that have outputs to go inside other ones. So it's sort of that, but on a whole other level. <laughs> but it's that basic a concept where the those nodes are essentially just most of the time like mathematical functions or probabilities or statistics or stuff like that, and they just output a, a they aggregate an output and then that goes into something else. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cool. So check out TensorFlow if you're yeah, interested. Yeah. Their tutorials are actually really good. You could basically download it. Like if you want, if you're interested in this field, learn Python. Trust me, you're gonna. <laughs> Do you want to make lots helpful. of money? <laughs> yeah, learn Python. It's, interesting thing is, it's actually very easy to learn, and they're teaching it in most high schools now. Like Python is way easier for you, anybody to pick up than like C plus plus or. Uh, Man, I learned programming all wrong. <laughs> you were just born too early. That's why. Yeah, yeah. I, I learned I learned Visual Basic, and then I learned yeah. C, C, and then C plus <laughs> plus. Yeah. Uh, all so, right. Yep. If you're interested, learn Python. Figure out what a Jupyter notebook is. Download TensorFlow. Do the tutorials. 
you'll be writing your own machine learning algorithms in no time. Man, this is such a throwback. We used to have this, you, you were one of like the first interviews and we had that like, what do you suggest if you want to have a job in software development? And yeah. we had like that. So now you have actual like useful. Uh, yeah. I think Safwan was our advice. first interview. He was our I first so. anything. Wasn't he? Yeah. We had, we had an I episode so. ourselves. And I think our episode two was Safwan. Yeah. 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 That was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're on like episode like 65 or something now. Crazy. Wow. all right um any other things you want to talk about before simon's fun fact of like the month it's been a while since we had a fun fact (laughs) it's been a long time (laughs) anything that we miss will go into the show notes show notes show notes show notes show notes notes. we're just gonna make up words in this episode (laughs) (laughs) they're not mistakes they're just too ahead of your time (laughs) yeah no, actually, that's legit. If you're if you're, if you're on the cutting edge, and you can just like, I'm gonna make up words, and then I'm gonna use them enough that they become like the yeah. words that are used. Just gonna drop it and just pretend like it's normal, right? Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Steamball. Steamball. <laughs> right, no, you, just, you just need a definition because you got to use it consistently, or else it won't. Like, no one will pick it up. Yeah, otherwise. it needs to mean something that's slightly different than a snowball. It has to like have a similar but different effect. It's a steam ball. It grows. It, it grows really quickly, but it also becomes less dense. So it, it covers a whole huge area. You don't see it coming after a while. It's a snowball. You don't see, it's, like, it's a snowball effect, but you don't see it coming. And all of a sudden, it's just like, if, if, oh, it, I'm hot and moist. What happens? <laughs> I don't know if those are the adjectives. <laughs> It's an idea that eventually just makes a lot of people mildly sexually aroused. <laughs> fun fact. What's your fun fact? Uh, okay, fun fact. It's Simon's fun fact of the week. I spent a bunch of time today in vomitoriums. Oh. Have you been in a vomitorium? I think you have. It sounds way more gross than it is. Um... So a vomitorium, despite sounding really disgusting, is actually just any hallway or doorway meant to allow a large group of people to move from one space to another. So the the, the term comes from is um, is Roman uh, in origin, and it originally referred to the hallways that allowed you to get out of the Colosseum. So if you're in a sports stadium and you walk down the bleachers and then you turn around and you go through like a big like door that goes under the bleachers, that's a vomitorium. But it's also also applies to anything where you like if you're in like uh as you come out of a plane and you're walking up like the gantryway or the 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 jetway, that is also a vomitorium. Just no one calls it that these days. <laughs> but I want to bring it back. This is one of these terms. All right. <laughs> I was about it's to say I have a feeling right. why it went away. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. If you want to, uh, you want to impress your impress your friends. Tell them you're going to take them to the vomitorium, and then they might not be your friends anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and then walk into a hallway and just stand there and come. Kind of, <laughs> <laughs> We're here. We're here. We have arrived. All right. That was cool. Cool. I have a, I have a, I have an additional fun fact, if you like, that I wanted to mention earlier. Sure. We were talking just because we were talking so much about. Canada recent uh, earlier on. Um, I was talking to Abby about this earlier, and it's stuck in my head. Um, currently, uh, because of the 150th anniversary of the place that half of us live, or three quarters of us <laughs> live, um, 
I still live in Canada. I'm not there right now. <laughs> not anymore. Um, oh, you think you're going back? Hopefully they're going to let me out of <laughs> yeah. America. If you go to the Bank of Canada's website that for the bill that they're printing to celebrate the anniversary, and you do up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, it like rains bills down on the website and plays our national anthem. That's hilarious. <laughs> the Konami code works yeah. on the Bank of Canada. Yeah. That's awesome. There's, there's a whole bunch of websites that works for it. All right. Um... This has been How Do You Engineer? Yay! Coming to you live, not live, coming to you recorded from New York City. It's Tuesday evening. <laughs> How Do You Engineer? Engineering Explained. Ooh. All right. Bye.